The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. A very warm welcome to my guest today, Mark Roberge. Mark is a uh, senior lecturer at Harvard Business School, former CRO at uh, HubSpot, author of bestseller, The Sales Acceleration Formula, and also a founding partner at Stage 2 Ventures, which is a new VC fund bringing go-to-market expertise to support sustainable revenue growth in B2B startups. Mark's also a regular on the conference circuit. His session was the highest rated talk at SASTA this year. So Mark, a very warm welcome to the Startup to Scale Up game plan. Thanks, Gary. I got to bring you around with me. That was a a very humbling introduction. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. Now, Mark, you've developed a framework to drive sustainable revenue growth comprising three stages, product market fit, go-to-market fit, and finally, growth and moat. And one of the underlying themes of this framework is your belief that the headlong pursuit of revenue growth, ignoring customer value churn and revenue retention, damages the prospects for many tech ventures. So perhaps we could just kick off with you explaining how and why you developed your model and why it differs from classical VC revenue growth models. Yeah, sure, Gary. So just to kind of paint the context for the audience, I mean, I spent 10 years at HubSpot and then left the IPO and joined the faculty at Harvard Business School, as you mentioned, and really just dedicated my professional time toward helping entrepreneurs through the viewpoint of revenue, because that was sort of the experience gift that I've been given. And I love entrepreneurship and I, entrepreneurs are my, they're my drug and I just any way I can help then through that lens is, is interesting to me. And so I get a ton of at-bats in the same way, I guess, that a, a professional poker player sees a thousand hands a week. I mean, I don't see a thousand companies a week, but I see a lot. I have to work with a lot of entrepreneurs and I get to follow many of their journeys. And that's kind of like the big pattern that I see over the last four years as I've been watching these as a board member, an investor, an academic, is there is this really unhealthy relationship with rapid revenue growth prematurely. I'm not saying grow slower, I'm just saying grow right. And so I can see where it kind of originates from. I think as I even just look at entrepreneurship over like a multi-decade viewpoint, I mean, my first venue into entrepreneurship in the late 90s, it was very common just to sell vaporware. Like you have an idea, you go and sell it before you build it, and then you build it after someone buys it. And thanks to the the infrastructure of the internet and cloud, and thanks to the work of like Eric Reese and Steve Blank on like Lean Startup and Agile, we have a much better method of entrepreneurship now. We build product with lots of customer insights. We don't think our idea is right before we have it. We just iterate, iterate, iterate till we get it right. And then we have what they labeled as product market fit. I just think once that happens, like that's right. I love that form of entrepreneurship. But once that happens, I don't think entrepreneurs know what to do. I think honestly think they're like, okay, we went through like the lean startup process. We built something, an MVP. Five customers use it. It doesn't have any bugs. So we have product market fit. They raise a series A, they get like 5 million bucks. And the next month they hire 20 reps. 
and they like go for, you know, millions of dollars. And it's like most of them a year later fire 20 reps and some of them go out of business. And that's really like the hole that I saw was they don't, I think there's just a premature definition of product market fit. And I think there's this gap of what you should do between that moment and the ability to actually absorb 20 reps in a month. That's really what this sequence was. And lots of times the focus is just on growing revenue without the foundations in place. That's what I have here is first, let's talk about product market fit and what it truly means as measured by continual customer success. So product market fit, in my opinion, is not five customers that you like your product and it's bug free. It's the ability to sign up a handful of customers in a quarter or a handful of customers in a month and to look at those customers 30, 60, 90 days later and see that like most of them are seeing the value, they're receiving the value that you promised them. That's product market fit. And doing that month after month, quarter after quarter, if you can do that, that's a foundation for a beautiful business. And most businesses never get there. Some businesses go public without ever getting there. And they just destroy a lot of market value. That to me is like the first North Stars, not five customers using a product bug free. It's the ability to bring on customers a couple a month, a couple a quarter, whatever, and to show that within 30, 60, 90 days, they're seeing the value promised them. And once you do that, then you move to go to market fit, which is I'm not ready to like sign up, find 20 reps and hire them. I don't even know what type of rep I'm looking for. I don't have a playbook yet. I don't know how to feed them with demand. I got to like, let's hire three and then let's practice a one or two demand gen sequences. And there's a particular way you want to set that up to be able to learn quickly. It's almost like agile selling. And let's figure out if we can get all that work. And I measure that by unit economics, right? So like in the world of SaaS that a lot of operate, payback period, LTV CAC, magic number, these are all relatively understood things. Can we hire two or three reps and stand up a demand gen sequence and a playbook that produces good unit economics? If I can, now I'm ready for the third phase, which is growth and moat. And so now I'm ready to hire reps. And I'm not going to hire 20 next month. I'm going to hire... It's all about a pace, not a raw number. So it's like, okay, we're ready to scale. Let's hire one rep a month. Or let's hire one rep every other month. And let's watch our customer success metrics. And let's watch your economics metrics. And if they're okay, let's go to two a month. And if they're not, let's fix it and see if we can get back on pace. And while I'm doing that, the growth and moat piece is I need to build a, a moat around my business because if I do succeed, the competition's coming. And I need a really good answer to why when they come in with the same product at half the price, I still win. And oftentimes there's some strategic decisions that I may be making at this point that's going to feed that. So that's the summary of the playbook. And knowing where you are and what your North Star is in each phase has really different implications on all the execution decisions of like, who should I hire as a rep? How should I comp them? How should I think about demand gen? How should I think about my sales playbook? They differ as you go through those phases. So stage one, you mentioned ensuring that the customers are seeing the value promised to them. How can you be sure Sure. the customers are indeed seeing the value promised? Sure. Okay. So the best factual number is, do they renew? The best factual number is the raw retention and churn number. As long as they're paying attention to the payment, they're not going to renew if they're not seeing value. 
The challenge with that measuring stick is a lagging indicator. Sometimes people are doing annual contracts. I personally wouldn't do annual contracts out of the gate so I can get the fast feedback loop. But regardless, churn is a lagging decision and indicator. So what you really want to do here is set up a customer success leading indicator to help you quantify this first step of product market fit. The industry is calling it the aha moment. And I find that it differs pretty significantly from company to company. There's no universal. It's not like set up the product or use the product every day. It just depends on the company. And there is a best practice to it though. So let me just give you a couple examples of what people are doing. So Slack's most recent, from what I've seen, their last public definition of what this was, was having a new company, a new customer send 2,000 team messages in the first month. And obviously, like Slack is a collaboration tool, a messaging collaboration tool. So you can see why that particular definition nicely fits with their value prop. Dropboxes was a customer's considered to have success when they add one file to one folder and one device. I think since then, they might have added a shareability component to it. But you can see, because that's what they're about is backup and storage. And, and for HubSpot, it was in our entire sales and marketing suite of like 25 features, if the company used five of them in the first 60 days, that was our leading indicator of success. And again, HubSpot's value prop was you don't need to buy 20 different tools. You can buy one and take advantage of them working together. So that means that if they use more than one of those features, like five, they're really taking advantage of, of what we have. And so the key that you want to be going through is this thing, you can automatically see this because you want the product to be automatically generating these reports and statuses for you. And hopefully it's something that surfaces within the first month or two or three, depending on the complexity of the company as well. And then hopefully it's aligned with your unique value prop. So you're driving people toward that. So that's really the first tactical step is to define your leading indicator of customer success and then aligning the entire organization around driving up that metric as quickly as possible. Let's jump onto stage two. And you used a phrase earlier that I've never come across before, agile selling. Can you give me some examples of what you mean by agile selling? Yeah, sure. So in this particular stage is go-to-market fit. So agile selling, I think officially was coined by Jill Conrath in her book called Agile Selling. I love Jill. Jill's a good friend and amazing thought leader. I think the way she framed it was around just how anyone should be learning rapidly in their jobs today. And so I think at this point, you're setting up your sales team around rapid learning. And so what that means is as opposed to just like achieving product market fit and then hiring 20 reps and sitting in a room for a day and like writing down your playbook or God forbid, using the same playbook you used at your last company, which was a totally different product and totally different buyer. Instead, you take a look at your buyer, you define your buyer journey, you layer on top of that a sales process that's customized to your context, who you're selling to and what you're selling. And you go and have these two or three reps run that playbook. And the difference is every evening at 5 p.m., the team comes together and listens to film like literally listens to calls or if you're selling in an in-person manner, deeply reflects on the what happened in each meeting. And what I like to do in that meeting is if we had like across the team of three, if we had like five or six key meetings, we'll just pick one to focus on, listen to it, and then ask ourselves like, 
is the playbook we wrote right for this customer? And usually in the beginning, it's not perfect. And if it's not perfect, is it because this customer is like not a good fit and we shouldn't have been talking to them to begin with? Or is our playbook off? And that leads to iterations on the playbook. And then also like, was the playbook right, but the rep just didn't do it right. And so like, how can we improve as a team? And through that process, that iterative process, you're honing in on the sales playbook and the perception of who the right buyers are and how they, what their journey's like to a codifiable playbook. And once I have that in place and I can look at that process and say, hey, wow, for two months now, we've, we've actually generated scalable demand through paid ads or on the SDR team or whatever, fed that to a team of reps. The close rate is reasonable. And as I funnel all those numbers through to an LTV to CAC, it's actually above three. And my payback's below 12. We have go-to-market fit. So now we're ready to go into one rep a month. But you don't just wake up one day and like devise a playbook and roll out and it works. It's all about setting up that iterative process. How do they defend their strong market position? Yeah, that's a great question. Much more strategy and honestly, didn't even get to dig into it in the Saster speech. And I rarely get to that point. But the key question at that point, because I think what happens most of the time at either the executive level or the board level is they think that their differentiation is more sustainable than it actually is. I think when I ask people, whether it's a sales exec who is trying to sell into their differentiation or it's a CEO who's trying to have a strategy around the differentiation, Oftentimes in tech, they lead to like features. And you have to ask yourself, like, how hard would it be for someone to just replicate that? And usually when you're relying on features, that's not a good sustainable differentiation. You set yourself up in a feature war and it's just not sustainable. Usually the thought exercises that you want to go through is let's imagine... Let's forward fast the clock two or three years and you achieve all the scale achievements that you want. You're now a 30 million, 40 million, $50 million business. You've got hundreds or thousands of customers. And all of a sudden, some rock star team from Google quits, raises 20 million from Sequoia, and builds your product. <laughs> exactly the same. Okay. And they're selling it for half the price. You're going head to head with them for a new customer. Why do you still win? That's sustainable differentiation. Okay, so let's go through some examples of people who did it. Uh, HubSpot, let's take that one that I know well. Because this happened. It happens to anyone who's successful. We had plenty of competitors that came in with pitching the exact same thing we had for less money. Salesforce bought Pardot. They bought ExactArt and Pardot and sold Pardot against us for a dollar a year. That's tough, right? And so why do they still buy HubSpot? They still bought HubSpot because they weren't buying the software. They're buying how to do inbound marketing. And we'd coined the term. There was no one better to teach them how to do inbound marketing. So we created a category. And the more that people leaned into claiming they were an inbound marketing company, the more it fed our system. Right. So category creation, if you buy into like the play bigger book, I think they're kind of claiming it the best. That's one way to create that sustainable differentiation is to kind of brand the category aligned with your corporation such that if people sign on to that category, they have to do it with you because you're the best in the world. What are some other examples? Dropbox. 
So if you look at the Dropbox versus Box battle, and I think if we look at market cap right now, Dropbox is winning pretty substantially. Box took the traditional like enterprise sales, like multi-million dollar reps, multi-million dollar deals, had a beautiful pitch for like the CIO of Fidelity, who's like super concerned about geographic redundancy and like all the right security things. And I think most people admit like their product in the early days wasn't that easy to use versus Dropbox. I mean, they started B2C to B. 99% of their customers never even spoke to a Dropbox employee. So they took a completely different like usability approach. And so when they're walking into the pitch, the CIO of Fidelity, she just got out of the meeting with Box and heard everything she wanted to hear from usability, from like geographic redundancy, security, et cetera. And Dropbox walks in and just says, 40% of your employees today use our product. (laughs) So would you like to go with Box and tell 40% of your employees that they have to stop using a product they love? Or do you want to go with us and we can talk to you about how we can make it secure? And no one could wake up. There were no 20 engineers at Google that could quit one day, raise money from Sequoia, and suddenly replicate a 10 million user base of network effects and all that kind of stuff. Right. So the traditional like network effects approach was and a little bit of a switching cost. These are like some of the standard true sustainable differentiations that could be created. And those weren't created in, in a month. And those were planned on from the early stages of the business. Nice. I switch direction a little. I'm keen to explore the fund, which confusingly is also called stage two. So not to be confused with <laughs> stages one, two, and three of the framework. How are the founders of the companies that you're investing in responding to the framework? Are they readily adopting the three stages or at least stages one to two? Because I guess none of them are yet at stage three. Absolutely. And I think a little it's because it's a huge part of our investment thesis. So if we're going to see resistance there, it's like it's not in our investment thesis. So just to just to back up a step. So stage two capital is a venture fund that we raised last year. It was the brainchild of Jay Poe, who at the time was an investor over at Bessemer, who I met through just like thinking about these go-to-market concepts, who he, uh, he shared the passion. And he had the idea to start arguably the first fund that is run by VPs of sales and marketing and customer success and backed exclusively by VPs of sales, marketing, and customer success. So we have 100 investors in our fund. They're all former or current VPs of sales, marketing, customer success. I mean, picture all the big brands from Salesforce to HubSpot to Zendesk to Facebook to you know all the players in software, Dropbox, etc., the executives are contributors to our fund. And so the thesis is that the venture community has historically provided exceptional world-class financial advice to entrepreneurs. And more recently in the last decade, really great product and strategy advice. But the go-to-market just sophistication doesn't seem to be on equal footing. And that was the gap that we were hoping to address. And so we follow very much a, when I first diligence a business, I do not know how to diligence a business from like the financial and market opportunity as good of like the traditional venture capitalist. That's what Jay does really well. But I feel like I personally can assess the quality of a sales playbook, the assess the quality of a sales leader, 
assess the sustainability of a demand gen program better than the average venture capitalist. And so that's the kind of stage we come in at is, first off, we can understand whether or not they've graduated from product market fit or not based on this methodology and recommend that we're not a fit if they're still in the product market fit mode. And then can assess how challenging the issues that we can potentially see that maybe they don't see are going to be to overcome. So across the board, and I write all of these companies that we end up investing, I write them a 10-page customized assessment based on these things. And hopefully as we start graduating, some of these companies will let me publicly share these assessments to help the general population get a little insight in here. But they're always in line with this particular framework. Have you rejected any companies that you could potentially have invested in that you where you liked the character, the track record of the leadership team? You even thought the technology, the solution, the offering had market potential, but you felt that they were more going for the traditional revenue growth at all costs. That was their kind of mindset. And because of that, you thought, no, there's no synergy here in growth mindset. So we better miss out on this opportunity. Yeah, lots of them. <laughs> lots of them. In some cases, they're also like really overpriced too. There mm-hmm. seems to be a synergy there. We've had to pass on companies that we love and they wanted us in, but they were just beyond our business model because we don't have limitless funds and we have to get in at a particular valuation. So that was a piece. We've definitely seen some that like this didn't, both the, the makeup of the board as well as the executive team, just, I think they were going down a path that I think is problematic with that revenue obsession. And that's, that's the core thesis of how we're trying to invest a little differently. We had somewhere really enlightened approach, I have to say. And I would say, like, honestly, half of them were going down that path. And we talked to them pre investment, and they were like, you could tell they were like, holy cow, this is, you're right. And we did do those deals. And some of them had already made the 20 rep hires. <laughs> and so there's a little bit of um, reaction to that. But, um, a re- a no. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully it, it plays itself out and we make the bigger, broader impact on the entrepreneurial ecosystem that we hope to do. Hope so. Now, tell me about your most recent investment and why specifically did you decide to invest in that company, that leadership team? Oof. Well, I think like the mo- what would be publicly announced, like Sendoso, we just did that deal, I think two months ago. They're out of San Francisco. They actually, it was funny because they had a competitive A round that they had completed in December, I believe. And they didn't know about us and we didn't know about them. And then when we, we met up six weeks later, we're like, oh man, I'm bummed we missed this. I'm like, yeah, we're really bummed you you missed it. Can we open it back up if it's okay with the VC? So that, that's been a pretty cool trend to see that this is perceived by the entrepreneurs as valuable such that they're, open to, they're willing to reopen an A that was competitive to get us in and the VCs are cool with it. The reason why they were kind of down that dangerous mindset, not to tell too much about you know their dirty laundry. I mean, exceptional company, amazing management team, unbelievable progress, huge category explosion, just a lot of goodness there. And really, it was just like, yeah, you're not as focused in your as you're. They're ready for scale, but I don't think they had put in place the operational systems to know how fast and where to scale. And that's really what we addressed. So it's, it's been a really fun one to kind of apply the methodology to. Who would you say 
Who's really inspired you to be who you are? It was the pushing of my mentors over the early parts of my career. You know, you'd have to start first with Brian Halligan, the co-founder and CEO of HubSpot. Brian and I were at MIT together. He's a former, more traditional salesperson coming up through like PTC, but at the same time, can see beyond where sales need to go. And so I I have to give him credit because honestly, I didn't intend to go into sales. He was the one, I was just like a, it was basically him and Darmesh and I was a consultant at HubSpot. And I was just like helping them with strategy. And he was like, dude, I don't really need strategy help. Just go sell. So he kind of pushed me to to just go in there. And it, it was his foresight to see that someone with a more analytical engineering oriented ability would be highly applicable to the innovations that are necessary in the new age sales model. So that was one. David Scott, our Series B investor, he raised the author of Four Entrepreneurs, which is an amazing blog, a general partner of Matrix. He really helped me. He was the first one to say, because you didn't come from sales and you came from engineering is a big reason why you're succeeding in the, in the revenue funnel. And I never clicked with me before. And then I just started to like write about it from that perspective. And that's really where the sales acceleration formula and all that kind of stuff was born. And then the final person was more of a traditional, like John McMahon, who was actually Halligan's boss, ironically, at PTC. He had scaled as head of worldwide sales PTC from 100 million to a billion in revenue. And he's had similar runs with the various companies. And so you can imagine what he's seen in terms of experience. And I connected with him about four years into the HubSpot experience, and he became my mentor. I spent four hours a month with him, and he just helped me just see how to think about scale at a bigger level. That relationship was a lot of fun because I feel like we challenged each other. I mean, I learned a ton from him, (laughs) but I think he learned a little bit from me because it was this new this new motion that he didn't have as much experience with. So I was really able to hear all the best practices of decades of like sales execution and challenge those with him to see what was still applicable and what wasn't. And he just helped me to see major issues that were coming that I wasn't seeing that was so critical that I respond to now. Tell me about your favorite business or technology book you've mentioned again you've mentioned a few during this conversation relating to specific questions i asked but what would you say overall is your favorite business or technology book and why it's a tough one i guess i'd have to go super old school and go to like spin selling i think it's honestly a combination of super super old school how to win friends and influence people by dale carnegie from the early parts of last century Spin Selling by Neil Rackham, who, who actually I was blessed to have write the forward for my book. And then more of the new school, The Challenger Sale. And I say all three of those just because I'm surprised at how misunderstood best practice selling is. Not, and I'm talking about sales leadership, sales management. I'm literally talking about running the sales meeting is. And it's, it's like everyone from like, amazing executives to super smart Harvard MBAs think that selling is about some persuasive presentation. And it's really about winning the trust of the person on the other side of the table, the buyer, such that you can ask very personal, deep questions about their perspectives and determining whether you are a good fit for them. And it's just like, it's just amazing that like 80% of salespeople don't even know that that's best class selling and don't know how to do it. 
I mean, and that's the reason yeah. why I picked those three books because I think they lay a pretty good foundation from different viewpoints on how to do that. Oh, three great recommendations there. And uh, interestingly, I've actually read all three of those books, which, <laughs> nice. is, which is a little unusual for books that are suggested in these um, <laughs> reviews. But I, yeah, I like them all. I'm a particular fan of uh, Challenger Sale. I think that's a book I've read more than once. Final question, or at least theme or topic from me. Now you've developed a framework for tech ventures, for startups and scale-ups, to help them scale in a sustainable way. What are your thoughts on VC funds? What's the roadmap, the framework for scaling your fund sustainably? I think I'm just going to regurgitate what a lot of people are saying out there, which is number one, money has become quite a commodity in venture. And it's not even because of like a, like the last three years, we've had a pretty good economy. If you just look at venture capital through the 70s, 80s, 90s, it was a much, much, much smaller segment than it is today. I think like the late 90s made entrepreneurship a whole new, bigger category and venture sort of followed. And so the venture capitalists of the 70s, 80s, and 90s could rely on just having money was enough. And there's still a little bit of that left over. But the venture capitalists, I think, that are winning today bring a lot more value to the table than money. You know, and you're seeing the best deal flow out there basically being like, dude, I don't need money. Like, I don't, the money's not the decision process. Like, what can you do for me in terms of like experience, network? You know, so that's what I think every firm is trying to do is answer that question, both for to win entrepreneurs and win good deals and also to attract institutional capital. And that you've seen that in all different ways. Anderson Horowitz has like a huge staff of operators to help. OpenView has like these recruiting and demand gen services that you can hire because they've operationalized it. Underscore VC gives um, preferred equity to their advisors that they bring in. So everyone's coming in with like a unique differentiation. So I think that's a big theme. And I think you honestly, you know, I'm obviously biased here, but investment partners who have operating experience, I think there's a that's becoming more important because of that desire of what the entrepreneurs are, are seeking out. And then I think the other thing that we're trying to capitalize on is a lot of these funds have gotten huge, you know, like billion dollars, half billion dollars. They just can't write $2 million checks. They can barely write $5 million checks. Like they have to write $30 million checks. And that's led to something that's been just talked about for a while, which is the capital gap. You know, there's more and more angel investment out there. So it's a lot easier than 10 years ago to get a million dollar seed round. And then these companies are getting, these funds are getting so big, they want these A's to be like eight, $10 million checks. And so there's this capital gap between the seed and the A. And that's where we're just having a lot of fun playing ball. It just happens, it happens to be this, the development stage of the business where they're starting to think about go to market and set up a sales team. So it's like in line with where we want to help. And it's also just like tons of deal flow there because they're not quite ready for their A, but like, they don't want to go back and do another seed. So it's like, I hope that as we continue to scale stage two, that we can scale and play ball there. So you found your sweet spot in the market. Excellent. Mark, thank you so much for joining me on today's episodes and sharing so many crucial and uh, inspirational insights. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, happy to be here, Gary. Thank you for putting it together. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. 
head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.